So according to the company profile page for Ancestry.com, there are over 3 million paying monthly subscribers to that service. Over 18 million people have sent in DNA kits to be examined and uploaded to their database. The company makes over a billion dollars in revenue every year and registers over a billion searches every single month. There are, in other words, a whole lot of people out there and perhaps right here who are deeply interested in trying to make sense of their present by exploring their past. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, today marks the first Sunday in the season of Lent. We officially began this season on this past Wednesday, which is known as Ash Wednesday, which marks the start of 40 days, mirroring Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, which will lead us to Holy Week, to Good Friday, and eventually, of course, to Easter morning. For this Lenten season here at St. Simon's Presbyterian, we thought we might join with all those others by spending a little time climbing through our family tree of faith. We are beginning today a sermon series that we are calling Ancestry DNA, Knowing Where We Come From. Each week we are going to visit with some of the better known as well as some of the lesser known characters of the Bible. And through their stories, stories that unfolded long ago, we're going to try and make sense of our story today. And the ways that our past, our ancestors in the faith, might instruct and guide our living for the days to come. And so we begin this series at the very base of our family tree by exploring the story of the two individuals who are the first two names of people ever uttered in all the scriptures, Adam and Eve. Friends, I invite you to listen now for a word from God as we hear these verses coming both from the second and the third chapters of the book of Genesis. It begins, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then continuing in chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. 
You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Good and gracious God, Plant us firmly at the base of this tree, this tree of life that you have given to each and every one of us. Oh God, as we enter this time when we gaze up into the branches of that tree, into the faces of our forebears in the faith, we pray that your spirit would be one that guides us, that strengthens us, but more than anything, that grows us that grows us in wisdom, that helps us to follow more closely where it is you are leading. Indeed, O oh God, we pray now that you would send your spirit, that through its work, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered there around that tree would be pleasing and glorifying to you. For you and you alone, O oh God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, for those Bible scholars out there, you may have noticed that we did not read the entire story of Adam and Eve, did we? In fact, what we read just moments ago is really just two parts of what is in reality a fourfold scene. Adam and Eve's story, of course, begins with the creation and then the placement of Adam there in the Garden of Eden, those verses we read from chapter 2. The next scene is then the formation of a helper for Adam, Eve. A different sermon, a different series even, might spend time exploring how that language of helper isn't really referring to domestic help. If you look at the, the word there for Eve, it is referring instead to a divine kind of help, an angelic different sermon a different time might be spent exploring how Eve then is created on an equal field to Adam. But still the story marches on and we reach the third scene which was the second part of our reading today the arrival and the disruption of the crafty serpent. And then of course the story ends with Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden itself. You know I've heard it said that Genesis 1, which is the first account of creation, remember that in our scriptures we have two creation stories. The first there in Genesis 1 is that beautiful language of, of God creating all of this in seven days. 
Each day begins with, then the Lord said, let there be light. And then it ends with, God saw that it was good. Over and over, let there be, and God saw that it is good. I've heard it said that Genesis 1 reads almost like a fine oil painting. This gorgeous image, layer upon layer, until all we see is the beauty of God's creation. So if Genesis 1 is like a fine oil painting, then Genesis 2 and 3, that second account of creation, Adam and Eve, it reads to me a little more like a, a grainy black and white photo that is slowly emerging as you read out of the chemicals there in the dark room. And even when it's fully developed and you're looking at it, you're still not quite sure what it is you're supposed to see. I think it might help us better understand what this image being portrayed for us in the story of Adam and Eve really is. If we first take a moment to consider some of the ancient, the other rather ancient creation stories. Right throughout human history, at some point, every culture in just about every time has developed a story or stories to account for their origin to understand, to make sense of, of how they came into being. Some of the most well-preserved ancient creation stories have come out of the hot, dry deserts of what was ancient Mesopotamia, modern-day Middle East, right? 3,000 years before the time of Christ. 3,000 years. We have these fragments of, of tablets that are referring to things like the heavens and the earth. If you fast forward just a little bit to say more modern times, like 2,000 or 1,000 years before the time of Christ, there are even better preserved tablets that record poetry and epics like that of uh, Gilgamesh that tell even more intricate, complex creation stories. If you read some of those stories, you pick up on certain themes that are present in most. Many of these stories seem to assume that that the universe has always existed, right? There was never a time like in our own creation story from Genesis 1 where, where there was only a void, darkness, nothing. Most of these other creation stories, they begin with this assumption that the universe has always existed. And then they tell about how at some point the heavens and the earth, they they collided and then they separated again, but there was this point where, where divine and material got mixed up. These stories often tell how uh, different gods play different roles. This god created water, that god created the hills, this god created grain. But what's most interesting, I think, about these creation stories, these other ancient creation stories, is nearly all of them, nearly all of them talk about the creation of, of us, of humans, of humanity, as being almost uh, an afterthought, or an accident, or even a mistake. You know, I had this uh, great uncle, who was really more of a, a grandfather figure to me. His name was Bapa. And this man was nuts about genealogy. He spent months, probably years of his life, digging through the basements of, 
of courthouses and libraries all across the state of Georgia and throughout the southeast, really. I still remember the room in, in the basement of Bapa and my great-aunt Tanny's apartment or condo, really, in Alpharetta. There was this room that was just full of file cabinets, cabinets that were literally overflowing with copies of, of land deeds and and ship manifests, and census records, and, and maps, so many maps. And every time you visited Bapa, in our case coming down from Ohio a few times a year, you'd always have to make the pilgrimage with him down to that basement room, because he would be so excited to share with you his latest aha moment. There would always be some person or some record that he had discovered since your last visit that, that connected up just one more branch in the Dyer or the Warnock or the Folsom family tree. This, this I think should be our first aha moment. As we begin this season of exploring our own ancestry, doing some genealogy of our faith, this right here is an aha moment. Because where all these other ancient creation stories treated humans as a mistake, an afterthought, an accident, here in this story, the story of Adam and Eve, we read that God created humanity. Created Adam and Eve, yes, but also created us. Not by a accident, but for a purpose. Go back and read again those verses from chapter 2. God creates Adam and he places him in the garden. Notice how there's not a period after that. It says that he placed Adam in the garden to do what? To work it and to take care of it. Other translations render that uh, to till it and keep it. If you look even closer at the language, what it really seems to be saying is he placed Adam in the garden, in creation, to serve it and preserve it. Right? We did not get here by mistake. God formed us out of the dust and breathed life into us. For a reason, God made us with a mission in mind. God created us to do God's work of nurturing and caring for and, and cultivating creation. And when Genesis talks about creation, it's not just talking about the dirt and the air. It's talking about all of it. Every living thing. Think about that. Here at the base of our family tree, we learn that the first strand in our DNA is a call to serve. To serve creation. And to serve others. But that's not the whole story, is it? You know, the second part of our reading today, the second half of this passage, is 
perhaps among the most interpreted and misinterpreted verses in all of the Bible. Paul, of course, was the first to make that connection between Adam and Christ in the epistles and his letters to the early church. And ever since then, theologians and people of faith have been seeking to to build upon that. One of the first examples is the second century bishop Irenaeus, who builds upon Paul's connection between Adam and Christ to begin reflecting on how Adam's and Eve's disobedience in this story is made right, finally, in Christ's perfect obedience. Irenaeus began to develop this imagery of how here in the center of the garden, at the beginning of our scriptures, we find a tree of life. And at the end of Jesus' life, we see a different kind of tree, a cross. Some years later, Augustine, of course, would look to this story from Genesis 2 and 3 to begin developing these notions of free will and original sin and the origins of evil. More contemporary theologians have looked at this story and and wanted to talk about how it's an example of a failure of leadership. Here, Adam and Eve, they, they fail to take personal responsibility for their actions. And while there's validity and there's worthwhile substance in all of that, I'll tell you what I see. When I read this story today, what I see are two people who God created for a purpose. And yet two people who are so prone to screw it all up, to make mistakes. I see two people who are easily distracted, who are eager to reach up and to to grab for power that doesn't belong to them. Are you beginning to see a resemblance yet? You know, I've never really fully understood why church people, us, why we seem so so committed to this notion that, that we somehow have to be perfect. That the more religious we are, the more we go to church, the more Bible studies we attend, that somehow that makes us more prone to be happy, to not have any problems in our life. I've never understood that. Because when I look at this example, Or maybe going back to that idea of a grainy black and white photo, when I pull that photo out of the tray there in the darkroom and I I look at that image of our earliest ancestors in the faith, what I see are two people who are created, yes, with God-given dignity and purpose and personality and potential and all the rest, and yet two people who are so prone to error, to mistakes. I see a picture that shows me, that shows us, where we come from, right? Because that's who we are. That is us. 
people who have been created in God's image and yet who are flawed, who are not perfect, who mess it up all the time. And how does God respond with death and and destruction and, and fire? Does God take the full weight of God's judgment and lay it on our shoulders as is perfectly within God's right to do? No. God responds with grace. At the beginning of these verses, Adam is told, if you eat from this tree, you will what? Die. But when we get to the end of this story, we find a God who instead, with a broken heart, knits clothes for his beloved and sends them on their way out into the world. From the beginning, from the beginning, the soil that all of us have been planted in and formed up from is the stuff of grace. Despite themselves, God still sees at the end of the story a purpose for Adam and for Eve. Despite ourselves, God still sees a purpose for each and every one of us. And so the roots on our family tree of faith, grow a bit deeper. And they reach a little further and expand a little higher. And the story goes on. And so will we next week. Amen.